1: What? Oh my goodness!
0: (laughs) Wow! Oh my god! What is that? Wow! Oh my god! Radiolab. Whoa! Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where every Thursday we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. And today we're talking about arms races. But Lauren, this is a podcast about biology, not international relations. Oh, I haven't forgotten. In biology, an arms race is a helpful analogy to explain how two adversarial species co-evolve. And in this episode, we're discussing how humans and retroviruses like HIV co-evolve. But how is that an arms race? Think of it like this, over the long course of evolution, viruses will evolve to get around host defenses, then the host will evolve to block those new and improved viruses, and then the virus evolves and the host evolves, so on and so forth forever for all time. But there's a big discrepancy here in that viruses can evolve much, much, much faster than humans. So how do we keep up? How are we even still in this race at all? That's where the work of my guest, Harmeet Malik, at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center comes in. He studies this arms race between humans and HIV, and our conversation today covers his lab's recent work determining some surprising characteristics of human antiviral proteins that allows them to persevere in this evolutionary fight against viruses, and how this information can be used to develop new, possibly curative, treatments for HIV.
1: My lab is very interested in the evolution of post-virus interactions. We are just witnessing an example of what happens when viruses break through our firewalls. So we were very interested in looking backwards in evolution to understand how is it that our antiviral systems actually work so well and what are the chinks in the armor that we can potentially use evolution as a guide to fill
0: Your work is focused on the evolution of antiviral proteins, you know, proteins that are encoded in the host genome, hosts as in humans. So, what are some of their mechanisms of protection? How do our proteins protect us from viruses?
1: It turns out that they actually intercede with the virus at pretty much every stage of the viral life cycle. So the virus needs to first negotiate interactions with the receptor on the host cell surface, then it needs to actually come into the cell navigate through the cytoplasm, and in the case of retroviruses, eventually make its way to the nucleus where it'll get integrated. Then that integrated copy is actually used to make daughter viruses. And on the way out, also it interacts with a whole bunch of other antiviral proteins. So it's an entire gauntlet of antiviral mechanisms. And for the virus to be successful, even in infecting a single cell, it needs to successfully run this entire gauntlet as far as the host is concerned, even though the viruses have this huge evolutionary advantage because they can evolve really rapidly, the host really only need to win one of these interactions in order to successfully impede the virus.
0: Right. The host has a lot of different ways that they can block the virus from infection. There are antiviral mechanisms at every step, but the virus also has its tricks. One thing, you know, COVID-19 and projects like Next Strain have really highlighted is how fast viruses can evolve. So can you give me a sense of how much faster a virus can evolve than a human can?
1: Yes, it turns out actually coronaviruses like COVID are among the slowest evolving RNA viruses. So I don't think we are going to have to worry about updating that vaccine every year like we do with influenza which evolves far more rapidly than coronaviruses. In terms of orders of magnitude, I would say a polio virus or influenza evolves maybe 10 to the fifth, 10 to the fourth times faster than the human genome. I should point out that we actually do have an immune mechanism that is a lot faster, which is the adaptive immune response where you can interact with the virus and educate your immune system and basically evolve a much better version of, say, a T cell or an antibody response. But these are all events that are happening within specific blood cells in your lineage. So they're not changing your genome in any way or what you pass on to your children. The arms races we study are particularly mediated by the innate immune system. And these are much slower because they are essentially variants that were successfully passed on from generation to generation. So once you think about the fact that generation times in humans are on the order of 25 years, whereas on the viruses, it's on the order of 25 minutes, you can sort of see why there's a significant difference between these.
0: I mean, that's just such an incredible discrepancy. But as you mentioned, humans have both what's called the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. So the innate is what you're born with. It's what's been passed down to you through evolution. It is that long arc of the host and the virus co-evolving together, whereas the adaptive immune system is the immune response that we're having to COVID right now. This is what we're talking about when we talk about antibodies or T cell responses. It's what happens at an individual level that fights off the infection. But that's not something you can pass down to your children. Like if I had COVID-19, I cannot pass immunity to my children.
1: Yeah, so a super excellent point. The innate defense system, you can sort of think about these as the scouts that go out on a battlefield. It's not their job to completely kill the incoming armies. It's their job just to keep the armies at bay such that there is enough time for the adaptive immune system, which needs to educate itself upon encountering this virus. And it takes several days for it to mount a successful response. So in a way, the innate immune system is a diversified portfolio, if you know, use the stock market analogy, where the adaptive immune system is you've got like a really hot tip and you're going after that because that's actually what dictates survival.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Your study is focused on one particular antiviral protein of the innate immune system, and that's called Trim5-alpha. So what's the function of Trim5-alpha?
1: Yeah, so TRIM5 alpha is a really effective block against the retroviruses. So, when retroviruses enter cells, they shed their shield or envelope onto the outer membrane. And what enters the cell is this capsid. And what TRIM5 does is, is that actually it coats this capsid really rapidly and basically degrades it so rapidly that the genome that is inside the shell is not able to actually undergo its proper life cycle and is basically arrested in its tracks. This can be a remarkably effective strategy. Rhesus macaques appear to be almost completely resistant to HIV infection. That's because the rhesus version of trim five was very, very quick and had high enough affinity to the incoming HIV capsid that it could bind and degrade it really quickly. It turns out that humans also have a TRIM5-alpha, but our TRIM5-alpha is not well-tuned to HIV. As a result, even though from a biochemical sense, it does the same thing as rhesus, from a biological sense, it's not quick enough or avid enough in order to mediate a proper block.
0: So, rhesus macaques are old-world monkeys. They're not our closest primate relatives, but we're still fairly closely related in terms of, like, all the animals on Earth. And so, when you look at their Trim 5 alpha which is this protein that attacks the protein shell of HIV, you saw that theirs was much better at attacking and neutralizing HIV and preventing it from infecting a cell. What did you know about its evolution at the outset of this research project?
1: My lab actually came in because we realized that TRIM5-alpha showed these signatures of these evolutionary arms races as shown by higher than expected amino acid change. But just like in any kind of arms race that is mediated by binding affinity, in this case TRIM5-alpha binding the HIV capsid, these changes were not randomly distributed over the surface of TRIM5-alpha. They were actually all focused on one particular domain of TRIM5-alpha that we refer to as the V1 loop or the variable one loop. And what we realized was that by simply swapping the V1 loop between rhesus and human TRIM5-alpha, we could confer nearly complete protection onto the human backbone, which was previously ineffective. And more remarkably, even a single amino acid mutation in the V1 loop from rhesus into human was able to confer biologically meaningful protection. So the reason that TRIM5-alpha from rhesus is so effective against HIV, whereas our version is not, is probably a matter of history. Rhesus TRIM5s acquired some sort of mutations because of their interaction with other pathogenic viruses that allowed them to tune their specificity such that they're now very good against HIV. Whereas human trim 5-alpha, because of a completely different history of interactions, has a very different spectral tuning, which makes them quite ineffective against HIV.
0: So since the split of our family tree, rhesus macaques have been exposed to a virus, which drove them to uh, eventually have HIV protection, whereas that virus was not part of our evolutionary history. And so we don't have those mutations. And so we're more prone to or sensitive to HIV infection. So now that we have this background on the innate immune system versus the adaptive immune system, this arms race between the host genome and the viral genome, your study is focused on TRIM5-alpha and particularly this V1 loop. So what is the question that you were setting out to address by studying this V1 loop? And how did you design your experiments to solve that question?
1: what we were kind of struck by was that there is this incredible asymmetry between the virus on the one hand and trim5alpha which is you know hardwired in your genome on the other hand we wanted to understand what is the evolutionary trajectory of trim5 variants that allows it to potentially play this back and forth arms race with the virus which is so rapidly evolving now the problem is that when we are looking at trim5 variants we are looking at variants that have already gone through mutation and selection, right? What we really lacked was an understanding of like, what is the potential of the version of human trim alpha that sits in our genome to be potentially effective? We already know that a single mutation can make it so much better. Now, is that single mutation really rare? Is that a very common mutation? But we don't have the ability to decouple mutation from selection. So what Jeanette Tentore, who's the postdoc in the lab who led all of this work, in collaboration with Michael Emmerman, they basically devised a very clever assay in which they could introduce all possible changes in the V1 loop of prim 5 alpha and essentially, in parallel, assess all of them for their ability to resist infection by HIV. So we are now providing the role of the natural selection by doing this experiment in the lab.
0: It's one thing to look at what evolution has done and comparing to all the different species of monkeys and all the different mammals and see like how evolution has shaped the sequence that Trim 5-Alpha has. But what you wanted to do here was to introduce every possible mutation. So changing every amino acid to every other possible amino acid to get the whole scope of not what evolution did provide, but what evolution could have provided if it hadn't been constrained in a particular way. And then you express these in cells and look to see at its potential to restrict HIV replication. Now let's get into what you guys found. From this analysis of the single mutations of TRIM5-alpha's V1 region, what was the first surprising result that you saw?
1: Yeah, so our paper had two big surprises. The first big surprise was when Jeanette looked into her profile of human TRIM5-alpha variants that were capable of resisting HIV-1, 55% of all possible single amino acid changes in the V1 loop were actually effective. This is like throwing darts on a dartboard Even if you're a really terrible dartboard player, most of the darts, you would basically end up with a version that was more likely to be better than human TRIM5-alpha that exists. Looking a little bit more deeply, this was happening was because of two arginine residues that are fixed in the human TRIM5-alpha sequence. Arginine, as you know, is a positively charged amino acid residue. And what she found was a mutation of these arginine residues to any other amino acid was actually beneficial. So we have not one, but two arginine residues and removing any one of these residues would now confer a significant gain of function against HIV onto the human trim 5 version. So we are actually poised in in this fitness valley where pretty much every walk anywhere in any direction would actually take us up fitness space where we would be better off in terms of fitness but also biochemically this revealed the possible mechanism that charge repulsion is the answer why human 5-alpha is not very effective against hiv1 i
0: think that result is so interesting because it's the exact opposite of what you are taught in genetics 101 you learn that most mutations are bad most mutations break things at best you can hope the change won't have an effect, but it is much, 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 much easier to mess something up than it is to improve it. That's what happens with most enzymes, especially, you know, in a super functional region like this. So the fact that this is the exact opposite, where almost any mutation makes it better, is so startling and surprising. And it, it is kind of baffling. <laughs> no,
1: you're absolutely right, Lauren. I think what's unique about this situation, though, is that we have a loop that is practically dedicated to the cause of interceding and recognizing viruses. And it has basically evolved enough flexibility over the years because it's basically dealing with these rapidly evolving retroviruses that it can A, tolerate a lot more mutations, but also B, mutations are more likely to be potentially beneficial rather than detrimental because of this locked in an arms race kind of scenario.
0: Yeah, that leads me to my next question, which was you did this huge mutational study to find out how easy it is to gain a mutation that makes Trim 5 better. But what about losing the ability? Is it equally easy to acquire a mutation in Trim 5 alpha that decreases its ability to recognize HIV, like make it even worse?
1: Yes, this was our even bigger surprise, frankly, which is that, you know, again, going back to this analogy of a fitness landscape where we have hills and valleys, where the valleys are where trim 5 variants are really poor and the peaks where the trim 5 variants are really good against a virus. We had started with human trim 5 alpha, which is actually quite poor against HIV. And we realized that it's pretty easy to walk up, you know, these hills that are surrounding the valley that human trim 5 alpha finds itself in. Rhesus trim 5 alpha, which is actually the grand champion of restricting HIV, sits on a fitness peak. What we wanted to know is well, how easy is it for us to push it off this peak by single mutations? So we now repeated exactly the same experiment, except this time we wanted to find variants that broke the restriction of HIV-1. You know, so your traditional loss of function type mutations. And here again, Jeanette was very surprised because what she found was that more than 50% of the single variants in V1 loop of Rhesus trim 5-alpha V1 Actually, had no measurable effect on HIV1 restriction. So that meant that Resystem 5 Alpha V1 loop is very mutationally flexible and resilient. So single mutations are not very likely to drop it off its fitness peak. So you know, if you're a, a skiing person, the analogy to use is that it's not that resystem 5 alpha is on these black diamond ski slopes where single steps take you down this precipice of fitness. It's more on these kind of flat plateaus where you can actually tolerate a lot of single mutations without significantly losing function. And that was actually a big surprise to us because our intuition was that these arms races are played out constantly in these black diamond-like scenarios where you have big gains of functions and also big losses of function. So putting the two things together, this meant that single mutations are very likely to gain function, but single mutations are not very likely to lose function.
0: Right. That's like the best combination of characteristics. Like it's easy to get better, but it's hard to get worse.
1: Exactly. Actually, my intuition before we did this experiment would have been to be the opposite in both respects. Not easy to get better, <laughs> very, very rare, and also very easy to lose it because it's kind of like a little bit of a lock-in key mechanism. Actually, it turns out it's easy to get better. There's not like a single feature of TRIM5-alpha that it's completely dependent on. There's many features that can accommodate these changes and still be functional.
0: So now that we've discussed this arms race and how TRIM5 has evolved this incredible ability to be flexible and to really for mutations to have this high likelihood of improving their function and a low probability of mutations impact being detrimental. My first question to kind of get into the bigger picture setting of this study is so if it's so easy to increase Trim 5 Alpha's ability to restrict HIV, why are humans stuck with this less optimal double arginine version?
1: This is a great question. You know, and I must confess we spent a lot of time thinking about this question because it's a little bit of a counterintuitive result. The short answer is we don't know the answer to that. We did test two possibilities. Possibility number one was that this double arginine was actually beneficial for some other retrovirus that we previously encountered in the past, but are no longer encountering. But in short, we found no evidence for that. It still remains possible though, right? Because we're talking about an event that happened in the common ancestor of humans, chimpanzees, and gorillas. So this is one of those unfortunate hypotheses that you cannot completely falsify because we don't necessarily have all the data. We don't have all of the viruses that were around at that point. The second hypothesis, which is also completely feasible, is that TRIM5-alpha actually has two roles in innate immunity. And it also upon sensing retroviral capsids actually turns on this NF-kappa B arm of the innate immune response. Now that response is something that is also very good to have in the context of a pathogenic infection, but also not good to have as an overblown response because that could trigger an autoimmune response. So the second hypothesis we have is that perhaps the double arginines were a way for you to have enough of a antiviral protection, but essentially not enough of this overresponse that would lead to potential autoimmunity. Now, I personally don't actually find that as a very satisfying answer because you know both of these have to do with avidity of interaction between trim five and the capsid. But it is again one of those things that we cannot exclude.
0: Yeah. So it could be that there was a retrovirus that's now gone extinct that influenced this and that sequence has just stuck. And especially because HIV is only 200 years old, that we haven't had enough time to really evolve that sequence, especially given the long generation times for humans. But then there's this other idea as well that since TRIM-5 is serving more than one role, those arginines might be acting as like a breaking mechanism so that you don't get overactive TRIM-5, which could lead to autoimmune activation.
1: Exactly. Like the double arginines might be the best compromise solution between having an effective antiviral response and not having overactive immunity. Exactly.
0: So how do we utilize this information? How does understanding this arms race and TRIM5's ability to basically get better, to be better, how can we use that information? Does this point to possible prophylactics or therapeutics?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. There is one mechanism of reintroducing TRIM5 variants in the preclinical stages right now in which people are taking hematopoietic stem cells and sort of repopulating stem cell niches of people who are already infected with HIV-1, if you had a means of editing these cells, such that they were more resistant to the attack of HIV-1, now had essentially completely a curative effect because the viruses were not able to infect these newly introduced cells. One mechanism where that has already been done, although accidentally, was the famous Berlin patient that, you know, happened to have undergone a stem cell transplant with a donor cell type that was deleted for the CCR5 gene, making all the stem cells of that recipient now resistant to the HIV. Now, CCR5 is like a pretty big hammer to throw at this because it's an important aspect of cell-cell signaling and cytokine response, etc. So the thought is that what if we could actually introduce trim 5 variants or variants of these other antiviral genes into these stem cells. And if we had the ability to put two or three of these different variants of antiviral factors, each tuned to a slightly different specificity, suddenly you would basically have stem cells that are just as effective as a CCR5 deletion or maybe even more effective. And you could even couple this with a CCR5 deletion to get like a much higher chance of a curative therapy. So I think what we are limited now on is like mechanisms of delivery of antiviral genes. And that's certainly an area of research that's potentially right. But what my lab is super interested in is, can we understand the grammar of these host virus interactions such so that we can we come up with the very best solutions that will be effective without actually triggering an autoimmune response.
0: Right. Since HIV infects your immune cells, you can seed basically a whole new set of immune cells by doing a bone marrow transplant with hematopoietic stem cells that have different mutations in them. So this was originally discovered, as you mentioned, in this famous Berlin patient whose HIV was cured by a specific mutation in the gene CCR5. But Another way to have this response would be to load the stem cells up with these antiviral proteins like TRIM5 that are all tuned towards optimal function against HIV. So they don't have to worry about this evolutionary arms race and trying to work against all these other viruses. You know, this is someone who already has HIV. This is someone that we want to try and cure so we can give them the version of TRIM5 alpha that is most likely to be really effective against HIV. And so by combining that with some other antiviral restriction factors that are also attuned, putting those stem cells into an HIV positive person could be a curative treatment. Because if you are able to now have your whole immune system with these resistant cells, there's nowhere for the virus to go and it will basically die out in that person.
1: That is the hope. But this gives us a really good chance to indulge kind of our basic sciences thinking and this evolutionary-inspired thinking to potentially come up with a solution that might be a checkmate for the virus. We're not quite there yet, though. We just have the initial check right now.
0: Well, great. So just to wrap up, what would you say the key take-home message of the article in our discussion today is?
1: I think the key take-home of our paper is really the mutational resilience and the finding that unlike a traditional protein-protein interaction interface, in these host virus arms races, protein-protein interaction interfaces are both likely to be adaptive as well as likely to be much more mutationally resilient, which allows them to accommodate the types of changes and the pace of change that they need to accommodate to keep pace with the changing viruses that they're trying to combat.
0: Right. If you can't beat them, be flexible. Exactly. Excellent. Armeet, thank you so much for joining me today on Journal Club. I love discussing this research with you.
1: Thank you, Lauren, for the opportunity.
0: And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.